right to worship the Father because of the Son, by the power of the Spirit with you this morning. Love that you're hustling and getting to church on a summer Sunday morning. This is the time in our service where, as a congregation, we sit under the preaching of the Word. One of my great aims as somebody who has the, the stewardship of feeding you as a shepherd from the Word is to get your hearts to love the words of God, uh, to come. My aim is to, to bring these words alive to you every Sunday. And then I was thinking about that. What I really mean is that you would come to see that these words are alive and active and sharp and true and powerful and helpful. Most of the time I do that by preaching to you from lots of words of Scripture. A paragraph, sometimes a whole chapter, several verses. And I work to get you to understand the big idea, the sound doctrine of truth that the Spirit is pressing in a bunch of those words. But sometimes I get stuck on just one phrase or even one word of Scripture And in my study and getting ready to lead you with the Spirit dealing with me, I just get stuck in that one place. So have you ever seen a cat with a ball of yarn all day? You don't have cats? That's awesome. I knew I loved this church. No cats all day. Have you ever seen a hiker walked up a hill? He's sweating. He finds a waterfall, just goes and stands under it for a while without moving. Have you ever been to a site like the Grand Canyon and you get there and you just freeze when you're looking out at that site? You don't want to move. You want to take in everything that that second has for you. Sometimes I get that way with Scripture. That's what we're going to be doing together today, soaking in one phrase, one word for all of its difficulty and its beauty and its power. So last week together, we looked in the book of Galatians at an entire list of sins. Paul rattled off 15 different sins which, if you give yourself to them, if you say, I'm going to practice these without repentance, will cause you to miss the kingdom of God. It was a very heavy Sunday, but there was one sin in there that just stopped me in my tracks. Paul is ticking them off, and he writes this. Boom, 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 fits of anger, fits of anger. And I just couldn't move off of those three words because as soon as I read fits of anger, I just immediately thought, this is me in our home. I'm 14 years into fatherhood, and there is this recurring routine of my fatherhood to be marked by fits of anger. So our crew has grown up enough now to have little inside jokes. You know when you got big enough with your brothers and sisters if you had them to have like little inside jokes? You know that point in your life when you realized, oh man, my family's crazy. I'm living in a sitcom. Nobody told me about this. It's okay to laugh at that. You can be humble. There is no pretense in the life of a Christian, right? Our homes are messed up because we're sinners, and there's a bunch of us living in 1,500 square feet. We're banging into each other. It's a crazy, crazy place. 
one of their little inside jokes, and I'm not bragging on this or laughing on this, I'm using this to introduce this to you. Today will be kind of raw um, because I'm preaching to you from weakness and not from strength. They will look at each other and they will go, Raisin, Raisin. This is inside joke code for, uh-oh, dad is raging again. In other words, it's very commonplace for me to very quickly move from calm to crazed. They've seen it. I'm not talking about every five minutes or every day of the week, but this is real. Just an example of how real this is. So I'm getting ready to preach on this to you this week, this text and topic. And I come home and somebody has cranked the basketball hoop that we have. Of course, we've got a hoop in the yard about a foot and a half below the sign that says, do not ever lower hoop an inch below this sign. Seven and a half, that's where it stops. It's down at about six and a half feet. So what is my immediate reaction? Is it a calm collection of the facts? Is it a quiet resolution of the problem? It's anger and wrath and fury and accusation and threats. And then what happens about 15 minutes later? I have to take Brandon upstairs. I have to sit with him in my room and I have to say, buddy, I am sorry. I'm sorry. I should not have had a fit of anger on you in that moment. I know that that cycle right there is not just an issue with one dad in the city of Melrose in greater Boston. I've been in rooms filled with you fathers confessing sin and we never get too far before someone goes, um, So there's these sudden moments in my life when I just want to kill one or all of my children. And it's not like a gasp in the room when you hear that confession. There's some grunts and some nodding heads like, bro, I get that right there. That's me too. Men, fathers, we default to angry. This is universally true. I don't know if you know who Dude Perfect is. Have you heard of this? It's for super geeks from Texas. Um, They got a video camera, and they've posted all these viral YouTube videos of different stereotypes of sports worlds. So here's the 10 stereotypes of guys that you'll see at the gym, and the 10 stereotypes of guys that you'll see at the rodeo uh, or the playing pickup basketball. If you click on and watch all of these, which I have because I have 13 and 11-year-old sons, there's one stereotype that appears over and over and over and over again. Who is it that shows up in every video? It's the rage monster. Whatever the context, whatever the sport, whatever the feel of the thing is, there's always one guy in there who snaps and starts breaking stuff. I find that meaningful. Just without even thinking about it, they knew we're going to stick a rage monster in every one of these because there's a rage monster in all of us. One thing that is universal to us. We snap and we break and we flip out. We get mad really fast. And nowhere does this reality raise its head more frequently, uh, more habitually, more harmfully, than in the context of fatherhood and a home. 
The first funeral that I ever did was for a guy who passed away in the Edgeworth neighborhood of Malden. He had no church connection, and so they gave me a call and asked if I would come and do the funeral for him. And I will never forget his son speaking at the funeral. This is about what he said. He said, Dad, I know that you didn't smile a lot, and I know that you loved doling out the orders, and I know that you never told us that you loved us, and I know that you loved yelling at our friends, and I know that your favorite place to be was in the garage with your tools, not being bothered by us kids. But I know that deep down inside, you really loved us. And I remember where I was standing, and I remember that moment because I was like, what a horrible legacy to leave behind as a dad. You're being buried, and your children are guessing at whether or not on the inside you loved them. Because on the surface, all of your dealings with them all of your reactions to them, all of their encounters with you, the dominant tone, the dominant emotion was brooding, volatile anger. I don't want that for myself as a dad. I don't want that for the dads in the life of our church. So I want to spend some time on these three words today, fits of anger, and I want to get to the roots and the remedy of this reality. If you're in here and you're not technically a dad, it's okay. The gospel truths that we're gonna press are just as applicable to you in your anger. When we do something like preach to all of us by way of the fathers, we're just doing what the New Testament does over and over again. Sometimes they're speaking to wives and the men can listen in and learn something. Sometimes the apostle is speaking to children or older men, older women, often to fathers. So that's what we're doing today, but this is for all of us to hear it. So let me pray and we'll get into it. Father, I pray that in your grace, you would set us free from the, the bondage to anger that so many of us live from. And I pray that though imperfect, Seven Mile Road would be a holy people where the fruit of the Spirit is being born and that we would see that the ground for this is the gospel of your grace. If you could just accomplish that this morning, so much good would be done in the next 10 years. So hear my prayer for this and answer, I pray. Amen. Okay, before we get into the text and the sinful side of anger, it's important that we establish with each other that we're clear that anger in itself is not necessarily an evil thing or an evil emotion. If you opened up Bible software, Accordance, or Logos, and you typed in the word anger, and you said, go find all the Bible verses that have anger in them, who is the person who is most often attached to those Bible verses? Who is it? It's God. It is. The living God gets angry. He pours out wrath. He unleashes fury. This is a part of who God is. But there's two things to note in here. Number one, with God, it is always, always holy anger. It's always exercised only in defense of his glory, in defense of the innocent, 
it is always exercised only because legitimate wrong has been done. His anger is always measured and careful and appropriate and suitable. We call it holy wrath or just anger. And the second thing we need to see also is, and this is amazing, the ground note of emotion with God is not anger, but grace. For example, when God reveals himself to Moses, here's what he says. The Lord, the Lord, and then watch what he begins with. Merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And then, but who will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, yes, God does get moved to anger, but he is no rage monster. He is incredibly gracious. That is his default mode with his creatures. And he waits and he waits and he waits and he waits for repentance until the cup of his wrath is filled and then he acts in righteousness. And there is never anyone to accuse God of sin in the exercise of his wrath. Now the problem is that we dads do anger in exactly the opposite way exactly opposite way. When we do anger, it does not look like our Father, and that's the anger that Paul is talking about in this text. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident, fits of anger. Fits of anger is this Bible word, Greek word thumos. It's the noun form of the verb that means to rush or to breathe like that or to to blow, or to smoke. So think of a bull's nostrils when he's charging. Think of a teapot and it's smoking. Think of the back of a space shuttle. That's this verb. Then if you put it in a plural noun form, it means sudden bursts, explosions, fits of anger. There's this emotion on the inside of us that with the slightest provocation, boom, explosion of anger. Okay, illustration. When I was in a youth group, we did something called a rockathon. Anyone know what that is? It's probably good that you don't. This is the big idea. We're going to get 50 middle school and high school kids. We're going to lock them in a sanctuary overnight, and they're going to raise money by being in rocking chairs all night long. And for every hour that you don't go to sleep and you rock in your chair, the youth group gets 10 bucks or whatever it is. About three o'clock in the morning, the only adult left in the room was Kenny Bailey. He was in charge, sitting up on the stage. I can still see this whole thing. At this point, he just wanted us all to forget about the fundraising, shut up and go to sleep. That's where Kenny was at three in the morning. But we were going wild. You're on like your 31st bag of Doritos and your 15th Pepsi, and you're with your friends. So we're rocking chairs. We're doing stunts in rocking chairs. We're playing tackle football in rocking chairs. There's this doll flying around the room. 
At some point, the doll flies from about the fifth row, and it strikes Kenny Bailey right upside the head. And Kenny Bailey snapped, completely went insane. I can still see it because he had a receding hairline, and when you're 13, you think, that's never going to happen to me. Look at that guy with the receding hairline. And there was this vein from about here right down to here, and it just like jolted in 3D. He went fit of anger. Nobody moved for 10 minutes, like the slightest creak of a rocking chair, you could hear it. After 10 minutes, we looked at each other and went, that was awesome. (laughs) Then the whole rest of the night, we just keep whispering, snap, 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 trying to get Kenny to explode. You feel that? That's what this verb is right here. That's what this is. Sudden, fast, immediate outburst of anger. That's because this is what anger does. Anger is the cannibal emotion. Do you know what I mean by that? Anger eats up all the other emotions. This is what it does. It devours them. If you let anger into the house of your emotions, what it does is it devours and it kicks out all the other emotions from the crawl space, from the attic, from the basement, it overtakes the whole place. And then anytime anyone comes to the door and rings the bell, the only person there to answer is anger. That's what it does. Volcano is the best example I can think of. What's on the inside of a volcano? Lava and that's it, right? Nothing else inside there. Lava eats up and destroys everything in the mountain, and then the first chance that it gets, the first break, the first opportunity, it explodes out of the mountain, and what does it do? It devours all life in its path. That is what a life that is given over to anger looks like. There is only one persistent, defining, dominating emotion It devours joy, it devours tenderness, it devours hopefulness, it devours empathy and kindness and compassion. It eats them up and then it broods consistently below the surface, ready to blow. That's what Paul is saying here in in this text. This is what he's saying in Ephesians 6 before. Don't provoke your children to explode against God by being the kind of man who is exploding against them. It is very easy for dads to live life angry. Volcanoes. Fits of anger. Okay, now let me ask the question, why? Why? Because in a sense, it doesn't make sense for fathers to be rage monsters with their kids. Rage monsters against boy bands? Fine. Raise monsters against people who do not know how to manipulate our rotary. We've got to work on that, but I can see it, right? It makes sense. Rage monsters against politicians, against whatever else, okay. But against their own flesh and blood? Why is this? I mean, I have very few passions in my life, right? Boring person. So Jesus and his gospel is one, my wife is another. I know that makes you embarrassing and uncomfortable sometimes how excited I am about her, 
but it's true and it's exemplary because we live in a culture where husbands are not all that excited about their wives. I'm trying to live before you in a way that says, husbands, your wives can be a passion of yours. Basketball is another passion. I know you're sick of that one too. What else? It's our children, right? Think of that. My love for them is, is off the hook. All my money, most of my free time, a ton of my praying, all my decisions about where are we going to live, who are we going to be, what are we going to do, what is it all wrapped up in? It's wrapped up in these, the seed, the four children that God has given to me. If this is the case, how does a dad fall into a rut where his consistent and immediate and dominant emotion toward his beloved children is snap and fits of anger. Okay, I just want to run through a few ideas with you. You can fill in your list. Some of these are sins. Some of these are just realities. I want us to see where this is coming from. Okay? So for one thing, dads are under pressure. Under a lot of pressure. You don't feel this thing until you become a dad, right? There's this weight to fatherhood that can cause you to snap. So how much does a baby weigh when they're born? Between five and some of you moms went crazy and were like, here's an 11-year-old baby. I mean, uh, that would be crazy. An 11-pound baby. 11-pound baby. Whatever it is, they're tiny, right? They're so little. Dad takes the baby in his arm and he's like, ah, I'm going to break this thing. Look at those toes. This is so cool. Weighs nothing. But there's another sense in which when I was handed my first child, it was like somebody saying, here's an anvil. And I need you to feel that. You become a dad. Provision, leadership, headship, responsibility, discipline, instruction. You are raising the life of an image bearer of the living God. It's on you, your shoulders. It's an awesome stewardship. It's very, very heavy. And we know what happens when things are under pressure constantly. They can snap. Don't mess with me. I'm trying to do this dad thing well. Another one. Dads do not like being inconvenienced. So what do we do? Fits of anger. So sometimes as dads, you fall into this lie and this trap of saying, I am entitled to this home running smoothly and everybody doing what I need, when I need, how I want, and when I want. After all, I'm the dad. I was out chasing the money so that you could eat. How dare you inconvenience me? How dare my thing not go the way that I wanted it to go? I'm entitled here. And so my response when you get in the way is going to be fits of anger. How about this? We're lazy. We're just lazy. What's easier when your child sins? Is it to pause, to take them upstairs, to sit with them, to disciple them, to be so knowledgeable about Scripture and God's intentions for them that you have good words to gospel them with, that is exhausting, difficult work. What's easier? Fit of anger. Just a couple of yelling words and a threaten with your fist, and it's done. Fits of anger because we're just lazy men. We have identity issues. 
We need the world to see how good of a father we are. It's very important to us. Our identity is wrapped up in the applause and the pats on the back of the world. And so what happens when our children threaten that? This is also a mom at the supermarket issue. Same feeling. How dare you put a sign out to the world that something's wrong with me? I'll kill you if you do that again. Now you laugh, but where's that coming from? It's an identity issue right there. My fatherhood and my appearance to the world must be perfect or almost perfect. Don't you dare do anything to mess my image up. How about this? We set false expectations on our kids. We are old. We forget what it's like to not be old, to be little and inexperienced and immature. We expect our children to behave in ways above their pay grade. So our whole family actually has fits of anger at Callie when she spills cups of milk. This is about a year ago because it's just like, I mean, come on now, every meal I got to do this? Why are we so mad with her? Because we're now 42 and 41 and 14 and 12 and 10, and she's still four and a half. And we're angry because she's not up to pace with what? She's four and a half. Or false expectations for teenagers, right? We expect them to think coherently and rationally, and their brains are just about now getting fully developed. We expect them to have the wisdom of the ages in them, and they're just learning this stuff. But as soon as they don't do what we think they should have done, what happens? How dare you act like you're 13? Kill you. They're 13. False expectations, brooding anger, resulting in fits. How about this? We compare our kids to other kids all the time. Have you not had this fit of anger if you're a parent? You spend 10 minutes with some kid and they're just like, in their, the best 10 minutes of the year for that kid. They haven't been that good for those 10 minutes ever, and you happen to catch it. What happens when you roll back around to your house? I was just with Susie or Henry, and you're not like them, and I'm going to snap on you. Feel that anger? False comparisons. How about this? We cope for failure in our lives by demanding that we control what's happening in our home. So I was just watching a movie, and at the beginning he says, yeah, my dad never accomplished anything in life, and he took it out on me. You feel that? In other words, the world's not going the way I want it to. My job's not going the way I want it to. Nobody's listening to me out there. I'm not succeeding. I'm out of control. I haven't become who I want to be. When I get home... I'm going to enforce my will somewhere. Somebody's going to listen to me. Something's going to happen according to my preferred schedule and what I want to be when I want it to be. I will succeed right here by the power of this fist. Sometimes it's just because we don't know any other way. We just don't know any other way. All we have ever seen is sin, mistake, wrath. Sin, mistake, wrath. Sin, mistake, wrath. And we think, okay, this is the job of a dad. As soon as people drop, uh, slip up, you drop the hammer. We don't know any other way to respond. This is just what you do. 
Okay, you could keep the list going. Here's what happens. All of these sins, all of these realities get internalized inside a dad's soul, one after the other, one after the other. And inside becomes this stirring, brooding volcano. Anger, only thing in there anymore, the norm. What is the end game of living like that? Well, for one thing, it's children who tread very lightly around dad, who find dad a threat and not a help, who kind of want to just get out of the way and get out of the house as quick as they can, who don't know what it is to have a tender-hearted leader and father in their lives. And also, dads who miss the kingdom of God. Don't miss the warnings of Scripture, the warning in this text that McCann read before. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, practice such things, have an identity in these things, they will miss, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so this is not a joke. This is very serious. What's the remedy? What's the remedy? So now here's where the Christian faith where Jesus differs from every other religion and all secular moralism and all government-run programs on fatherhood and everything else. What do they give you as a remedy for this problem? Tips and techniques, right? Breathe. Count to 10. Cruz, you better count to 20. Go take some yoga classes at the Y. Listen to smooth jazz in the car every day. It's going to chill you out. I literally read a blogger this week. This was her big suggestion. My personal recommendation is to go outside and pull some weeds in the yard. All right, now some of those suggestions are crap. Some of them are actually great and good. The Bible's filled with tips and techniques, right? Like in Proverbs, it says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. So we can benefit from understanding the mechanics of how to respond, but I'm telling you, none of those things go deep enough. None of them gets down to the root of the problem. This is like saying, you got a volcano about to erupt? Go get your garden hose, just stand outside on that thing and just spray a little and that'll fix it. Water it down. Never. Our remedy for this brooding, exploding, brooding, exploding anger is the gospel. To be more specific, it is dads believing the gospel. And then to be even more specific, it is dads coming to understand and receive deep in our angry souls the healing power of the grace of Jesus Christ. That's our remedy. Here's what I mean. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul commands them, encourages them to stop it with the fits of anger. And here's what he says. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. There's no place in the Christian life for any of us for fits of anger. Great. Where does Paul go 
to ground these commands? Where does he go to help you find the power, the motivation, the strength to actually get there, to actually live with different responses, anger-free? Here's where he grounds it. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgives you. That's gospel. In other words, dads, if you are ever going to get free from decades of hardened and numbing Tenderness killing, quickly, cranky, always right there, suddenly explosive anger. You need to let the smile of God in Christ melt it away. Melt it away. You need to believe that your Father has not poured out His wrath on you, even though you didn't deserve it. But he has done what was necessary to lovingly forgive you through the propitiation of Jesus Christ. You need to believe the sweet truth, such a sweet truth, that God in Christ is disposed towards you now always in love, in patience, in forbearance, in mercy. And you need to let that gospel truth change you. You need to believe that when your Father, by the Spirit, erupts on you, it is never, never, never an outburst or a fit of wrath. It is always a cascade of grace, of grace. Receive that and then go live that with your children. Here's the dynamic of tender and happy and holy fatherhood. As God has forgiven you, go forgive your children. As grace gets deep in you, let it run over onto your children. Once you get to this place of gospel grace, stay there. Keep believing the gospel. Keep savoring the depths of and the, the preciousness and the power of the gospel, and that believing will sever the root of anger. Kill it. So if your anger is triggered mostly by identity issues, believe the gospel, which declares to you your identity is secure in Christ. It doesn't matter what people think of your fatherhood. Now you're free to stop getting so mad. If your anger is mostly driven by fear that your kids are not going to turn out good, so I just got to be mad and aggressively steer them in the right direction. Believe the gospel that insists with you, they're not your children. They're God's covenant children. He intends to show them grace. Be set free from the fear that drives anger to now be filled with joy and hope in your parenting. If your anger is mostly triggered by control issues, believe the gospel that says that God is sovereign over all things, so you don't have to be. Just stop being angry about your lack of control. 
if your anger is triggered mostly by convenience and entitlement, believe the gospel which declares to you it's the first who come last. The greatest in the kingdom is the slave of all. The one that Jesus celebrates the most is the one who lives on everyone else's schedule. Believe in the gospel sets you free to say, I'm not going to get mad when I'm inconvenienced. This is an invitation from Jesus to me to be like Christ and see the gospel take root in my home. As you do these things, you will experience a very different kind of volcanic life, kind of volcano in your life. There will be this new river of emotions that flow down on your kids. When a volcano explodes and the lava runs down the hill, everything dies. What about a beautiful fountain at the top of a mountain in Maine when it crests out from there and those waters are running down? What do we see tightly bound right around that stream of water? It's life. It's life. This is what Jesus intends for your life and for your home, for you not to be the volcano that explodes lava and just crushes everyone, but to be a fountain of sweet, life-giving water. That's what Jesus does for you in the gospel. As you believe the gospel, he fills your home with new emotions. Out goes anger, in comes joy. Out goes anger, in comes tender-heartedness. Out goes anger, in comes forgiveness and mercy and grace and gentleness. Instead of being the dad who is always ready to erupt, you become the dad who is always ready to encourage and applaud and celebrate and listen and love and forgive. That's what Jesus intends for us. Please don't miss the unbelievable opportunity we have right now in the life of this church and mission to do fatherhood holy. I mean, if a hundred fathers would give themselves to the life and the mission of this church and give themselves to tenderheartedness, sweet spiritual emotions, the impact would be unbelievable. You know about the lack of fathers in our culture and context? You know about how the ones that we do have tend toward anger and wrath and fury. Every time you see a new kid in this church, you're supposed to think the father is giving another dad another opportunity to put away all bitterness, wrath, malice, anger, and instead to be forgiving and tenderhearted. We will get there as we give ourselves to believing the gospel. That's what I want for you that's what I want for your sons and your daughters. That's what I want for this, this church that might be staggering to see dads who don't rage. Dads who love and who forgive. Let's pray and ask the Spirit to come and do that work in us. Father, these are heavy words. I'm positive that somebody in this room, father, mother, single person, kid, will snap this afternoon as we leave this place. It's who we are. Thank you that you know our frame. But we, won't, we don't want to settle for this. 
We want desperately to see the Spirit of God bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We want our kids to not have to guess at our funerals if we love them or not, but to be able to talk for five hours about the tenderness and the patience and the joy and the happiness of my dad. Would you come and do that work in the life of our church? Would you raise up young men who want to be fathers like this? Would you forgive the sin that is present in this room right now by turning our hearts to repentance? And will you give each of us a vision of our Father in heaven who is disposed toward us in steadfast love and mercy? Would you do this for our joy? And would you do it for your glory, I pray. Amen.